Hello, and welcome to the October 2011 edition of the Lesbian and Gay Law Notes podcast. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly summary of all the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And with that introduction, let's get start, started talking about the lead story in the October issue of Law Notes. Um, so our Arizona continues to be at the forefront of uh, testing just how far draconian laws can go. On that front, uh, in the lead story of Law Notes, um, Law Notes covers Diaz versus Brewer, a Ninth Circuit case involving an Arizona law that would have repealed health care benefits for the same-sex partners of state employees. In the case, the Ninth Circuit ultimately affirmed the district court's grant of a preliminary injunction blocking implementation of the law while the legal challenge proceeds. Art, um, tell us, what is this case all about? And specifically, is it about anything other than pure animus aimed at the LGBT community? Well, that's loading the deck, Brad. (laughs) What this case is about traces back to when Janet Napolitano was governor of Arizona, and under her leadership, they amended their administrative code to redefine who counts as a dependent for purposes of their public employee health insurance program they decided to include domestic partners, both same-sex and different-sex domestic partners, and their children as dependents for purposes of eligibility. Then the people of Arizona amended their state constitution to ban same-sex marriage. Janet Napolitano went to Washington to become Secretary of Homeland Security, and uh, the lieutenant governor uh, became the governor. So Janet Brewer became the governor, And the legislature reacting to the passage of the constitutional amendment and also to a state budget crisis decided to save some money by eliminating domestic partnership coverage entirely. That includes both different sex and same sex domestic partners. So they passed a new statute. On on that point, though, Art, was was this really a cost-saving measure? Was the idea of also eliminating coverage for opposite-sex couples really what was driving the decision there? Well, we don't know how much money they're going to save if this ever gets implemented. Uh, The chances are good that more different sex than same-sex couples signed up for benefits, just in the nature of things. But uh, what happened was they passed this law restoring a more restrictive definition of, uh, of spouse for purposes of eligibility. And immediately, Lambda Legal, representing some state employees whose uh, partners were going to lose coverage and whose partners were uninsurable because they were actually receiving benefits for medical conditions that would have disqualified them from buying new coverage, uh, they went into court, into federal court, and they claimed that this violated the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause just with respect to same-sex partners. They were not making any kind of claim on behalf of different-sex partners who, after all, can marry in Arizona. So uh, the district court gave temporary relief. As soon as the uh, complaint was filed, there was temporary relief staying the effect of the new law. And then after hearing, the judge granted a preliminary injunction saying that the existing benefits would remain in effect while the case is being litigated on the merits. And, and, and during that time, Art, uh, can you give us a flavor? Uh, you've mentioned the cost uh, conserving precious state resources, which is one potential justification. Can you give us a flavor of some of the other justifications offered by the state for this, this law? Well, the, uh, the usual justification, and it was articulated here, was that the state has an interest in promoting marriage 
And since same-sex couples are not allowed to marry, there's no need to promote marriage by giving them benefits. Right. Uh, no, I, I don't understand the logic of that either, and neither did the court. Uh, which, I'm trying to figure yes. out what I'm missing. See, well, we're talking about a case in which ultimately the district judge said that the plaintiffs have a very, very strong likelihood of succeeding on the merits, which is why they got preliminary injunctive relief, because uh, based on the presentations of the state in opposition to the motion seeking preliminary injunctive relief, the court found that there was no rational basis for suspending benefits for same-sex partners. The state came in and said, this is about money. We're trying to save money. So the court said, okay, show us how much money you're planning to save. And the state said, oh, we don't have that figure. It's just not handy. We don't know. And they, and they couldn't differentiate well, right, between how much was spent on same-sex right. uh, benefits as opposed to benefits for – When people signed up, they didn't do any kind of bookkeeping entry or anything that would give them a very quick – way they could just press some buttons on a computer well, and come up with these that numbers. That would be a very expensive computer program. That would Oh, yes. It would, it would probably cost them uh, uh, $100 to – well, well, no. Uh, it would, it would take, it'd take the time of a very talented program writer to come up with well, the program. Absolutely. And, and all kidding aside, I mean the part I was looking at you quizzically, which you can't see on the podcast because I was trying to wrap my head around – the justification, and although we've seen these justifications uh, in a variety of cases, the, the thing that is confusing about it is just if they did want to promote marriage, one way to do it would be allow, obviously, same-sex couples to marry and then restrict the benefits yes. to only married couples. Those are not the marriages they want to promote. Well, that's, that's – that, uh, Well, you see, that's the, the problem is and, – and we see this again in, in one of the other cases we're going to talk about today, that uh, the tradition in this country has been that legislatures – that want to show their disapproval of homosexuality will pass laws that exclude gay people from being able to do things or access benefits. Uh, and then if they're actually put to the test of explaining why they did it, the true answer is because we want to signal disapproval <laughs> of gay people. And the problem with that is that the Supreme Court has said that that is not a legitimate rational basis for legislation. But, but Art, that brings, that brings us back to – I know you'll have an answer for it and perhaps I show my naivete uh, in asking it. But the part that I don't get is you know, these cases, including one we'll talk about in a moment, occur against the backdrop of a, either a state statute or a constitutional prohibition. Uh, against same-sex marriage, which apparently withstands muster uh, or is able to be on the books. So it seems almost a little bit paradoxical that a natural extension about, of that, which is, well, for the reasons you decide to limit marriage be to a man and a woman, well, I guess all the other types of things that you know are part and parcel of that would be restricted well, as well. Th I mean. This is why the most important litigation, perhaps, that's going on today in LGBT rights is the series of lawsuits on file around the country challenging Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act because what we're really asking is, is there any rational basis to exclude same-sex couples from marriage and the benefits that go with marriage? And uh, so far, the answers that uh, lawyers come up with representing state legislatures and state governments uh, don't impress judges too much. <laughs> Because there are answers that may have passed muster back in the days of Bowers versus Hardwick when the Supreme Court said you can enact an anti-gay policy uh, in order to express disapproval of homosexuality, uh, which was basically the argument the Supreme Court accepted in 1986 in Bowers versus Hardwick when it upheld the Georgia so Sovereignty Statute. So here you go again with it. It all comes back to Lawrence. It all comes back to Lawrence versus Texas uh, and Evans versus Romer, mm -hmm. uh, those two cases which really established that if the state wants to set up a policy that discriminates based on sexual orientation, 
They've got to have a reason other than disapproval of homosexuality. So isn't this Scalia's great fear? I mean, when he dissented in Lawrence, wasn't he saying, we're going to have nothing left here? To well, Scalia was concerned that masturbation would become legal. <laughs> and uh, the, odd thing, legal? Is, is the odd, the odd thing was that I think it was legal just about everywhere at the time he said that. Uh, but remember, a Surgeon General of the United States got fired for saying that we should teach children to masturbate right. as a form of safe sex. Well, is it, it's not criminalized, is it? Because, no, okay. it's, it's not, although Scalia probably would like it to be criminalized. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, but, the, but the Law Notes iPod uh, cast is not supposed to be humorous, right? So. Well, there is a certain it's, – it's so sad that it's – I don't know if it's so sad that it's funny or it's just um, – you know, maybe okay. we've arrived at a point where but, we can see it for what it is. But, but. there's a peculiarity about this case, and uh, it, it strikes me particularly because I teach employment discrimination law, and this is something that we teach, uh, certainly in the employment discrimination area, that when you're talking about uh, public employees bringing uh, an equal protection suit, uh, claiming that some policy has a disparate impact, has a discriminatory effect, uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that that's not a valid claim under the Equal Protection Clause unless you show discriminatory intent by the legislature or the governmental body that's making a policy or carrying out a policy, that the uh, guarantee of equal protection of the laws is a guarantee against intentional discrimination. Uh, and the easiest way to show intentional discrimination is to show that a statute on its face discriminates uh, against a particular group of people. Now, in this case, the statute on its face doesn't discriminate against uh, anyone except people who aren't married. Right, which includes both same-sex and opposite-sex right. couples. And so I was sort of surprised that there's no discussion, either in the district court's decision or in the Ninth Circuit decision, which is the subject of our article, which came out on September 6th, upholding the grant of preliminary injunctive relief, uh, the Court of Appeals just quotes the district court's finding that there's a discriminatory effect of this law, even though on its face it applies to both different sex and same-sex couples. The, the district court judge said, but different sex couples can marry if they want these benefits, and same-sex couples can't, and therefore there's a discriminatory effect. And so I'm asking, why doesn't the court discuss intent? Maybe this is sort of, you know, it's the elephant in the room or something mm -hmm. like that. It's, it's, and I use the word elephant advisedly because the Republicans control the Arizona legislature. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the point is that this is an anti-gay law. It's because legislatures don't want gay people getting these benefits. Well, and, and on that, the last, uh, the last point I wanted to just uh, – or last question I wanted to throw your way on this case was uh, – and again, this could be asked of a lot of cases we've already talked about or will be talking about – is – you know, we have these situations where they, they, they have their constitutional prohibition against same-sex marriage, and, and one could imagine them being sort of – or maybe they, you can't, but one could imagine them being content with that. Um, but they seem to – you know, opponents of the LGBT community seem to want to take it a step further in all of these cases. And I wonder if you think, particularly as DOMA litig challenges are, are proceeding to the courts, I mean, is this a case where our opponents in a, in, a, in a sort of perverted sort of way – and I don't mean to use that word as a pun given what some of our opponents think of the LGBT community um, – but sort of almost do us a favor by overreaching with some of these really draconian actions rather than being content to leave it, leave well, things alone. They do make themselves look ridiculous in the eyes of the court. And to the extent that the mainstream media is even reporting on these things, uh, they make themselves look ridiculous generally. Uh, I think 
it's it's interesting that uh, Governor Brewer's reaction to this Ninth Circuit decision was to ask for on-bank review. Mm-hmm. This is asking for on-bank review of a preliminary injunction, <laughs> which I doubt that the Ninth Circuit would grant. Who knows? Uh, it, it seems to me that the case itself is rather significant. This three-judge district, uh, this three-judge uh, court of appeals panel ruling that there's no rational basis for this distinction, for denying benefits to same-sex partners. And and on that note, I will take a break. I do want to, in the context of another case, which we'll be talking about shortly, which uh, relates to a case in in Alaska, the Superior Court of Alaska for the 3rd District, and it concerned the constitutionality of an Alaskan real property tax exemption. And I want to get back to, when we return, uh, the issue of rational basis uh, versus heightened scrutiny and winning on on the rational basis grounds versus the heightened scrutiny scrutiny grounds and what that means uh, going forward. So we'll take a short break, and we will be right back. We are back in the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast for October 2011. Uh, We're talking about our second story, uh, which is a case out of Alaska, specifically the Superior Court of Alaska for the 3rd District. That court recently granted summary judgment on behalf of three same-sex couples who brought a suit challenging the constitutionality of an Alaskan real property tax exemption. The case is Schmidt versus State, uh, State of Alaska, that is, and involved a tax exemption provided to disabled veterans and persons over the age of 65. Now, how that relates specifically to the LGBT community, let's get to that. But first, uh, Art, tell us about what, tell us about the exemption at issue in this case. Okay. Uh, the legislature had the idea that it would be helpful to uh, people who are retired or on fixed incomes, veterans, uh, to stay in their homes to give them an exemption from property tax. And so the way this works is uh, an individual who qualifies can exclude the first $150,000 of the assessed value of their property from being subject to state and local property taxes. And uh, if they're married, they can take $150,000 if they're not married to the person they're living with, and the person they're living with is not also qualified. They can only take $75,000. It's sort of presumed that they have a half interest if if they can document that, that they have. More so, sort of for same-sex couples, right. if you're otherwise qualified for the exemption, you're really only entitled to a, a right. proportionate share of the exemption, so to speak. Whereas with opposite-sex couples, it, could, it, it doesn't matter who owns what or how much you're entitled to. If the they're married, exemption. if they're married, if they're married. Yeah. And same thing with veterans. Uh, veterans who are married can have the uh, uh, entire exemption. Uh, veterans who are living with an, a non-married partner. Uh, who's not also a veteran, can only have part of the exception because they're only credited with having part ownership of the property uh, in terms of the value of, uh, of this exemption. It's a bit hard to, uh, to describe and to understand, but the way it works out is if you have uh, two gay men, two lesbians who are living together in a house and one of them's a veteran and the other isn't, they only get half the exemption. But if they were married to each other, they would get the whole exemption. And now insert the part about how those same-sex couples can't take use, make use of the full exemption because why? Because they're not, not able to marry. Yes, cue the music for yet another state. What are we yes. at, 40, 41 states with a... a, a uh, well, Alaska was among the first uh, to pass an amendment banning same-sex marriage. Uh, and in fact, 
It may be the first because the Hawaii Amendment, which passed at the same time as the Alaska Amendment, didn't ban same-sex marriage. It just said that it was up to the legislature to decide whether same-sex couples could marry. Uh, so the Alaska decision was also in response to a trial court ruling uh, that said same-sex couples should be entitled to marry under the Alaska Constitution. So uh, in this case, the trial court had a very solid precedent to work with because the ACLU had brought suit against the state several years ago on behalf of state employees uh, who claimed that uh, their same-sex partner should be eligible for health insurance benefits. And the uh, state Supreme Court said there seemed to be no rational basis for excluding them. Uh, so the, uh, the trial judge in this case uh, was on pretty strong ground, Judge Frank Fifner in uh, Anchorage, Alaska. The city of Anchorage was a co-defendant in this case because there were local property taxes involved as well. And he said that given the disposition of the Alaska Supreme Court in the ACLU case, which was decided in 2005, the result in this case seems inevitable to him. He said, turning to the state, what is your rational basis for excluding same-sex partners who live together from this exemption? And, and, and Alaska officials in this case, do they do... Any, well, any better or any different? No, than they, do, they do the usual song and dance. But the, the judge says, well, look, let's see whether excluding same-sex couples advances the purposes of the exemption, why the exemption was adopted. The exemption was adopted to help older people and veterans to be able to stay in their homes and not be forced out of them because they can't afford the property taxes. And the state also said uh, one of their rationales for uh, limiting this law to uh, the, the full effect of the exemption to married couples was they said that if someone becomes disabled or sick or something like that, their spouse is most likely to provide support. And, and, and the court said, well, what about dedicated same-sex partners? <laughs> you, you beat me to the punch. And what's, yeah. what's, what's sort of the fascinating thing about a lot of these cases is that through the course of the, uh, the disposition of them, the those uh, in this case and often is the case on the state side of things are forced to make concessions uh, that you know we, we wouldn't necessarily expect them to be able to uh, to make in, or be forced to make which is in this case they make the concession that yes uh, same-sex partners can be just as likely to care for their loved one and to step up when the times are bad to care for their loved one uh, whether it be in the form of health care or housing and other needs so sort of I think the court points out here sort of actually this you, the argument cuts the other way, that in fact uh, you, you, would, you would serve the purposes better by allowing it to be fully enjoyed by same-sex couples. Exactly. And I think what's, what's significant here, and also thinking back to the Ninth Circuit decision on the Arizona benefits, we're seeing that rational basis review is working for us, uh, even though still the gold standard would, would be to get heightened scrutiny. Well, can you, can you pause for that? I'm glad you, you got to it. And I've been at some discussions where people have sort of a talk about how it's so important that we get to the point where heightened scrutiny is applied in these cases. But we're starting to see a lot of these cases where we have courts saying, well, we don't even have to get to the question of whether heightened scrutiny, heightened scrutiny applies because this so obviously fails rational basis review. And I'm just wondering, I mean, you, you referred to the gold standard. Uh, is, is it as much a gold standard as we thought prior to these cases coming well, out? Well, it would certainly make it easier to win them because mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we even get the state uh, willing to concede that it will be a slam-dunk victory for the plaintiffs if the court applies heightened scrutiny. Uh, the Obama administration has taken that position with respect to Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act. They've said if the court says that heightened scrutiny should apply, 
then we believe the statute's unconstitutional. They're not willing to concede yet that Delma's unconstitutional if heightened scrutiny doesn't apply. What they're arguing is that heightened scrutiny applies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so they're going out on a limb, uh, in a sense, and asking courts to strike down a law, which is unusual for the Justice Department to do, and uh, which, in fact, one of the other sort of interesting news items of the past month was that the uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops sent a strongly worded letter to President Obama sort of scolding the administration for asking the courts to strike down Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, so in, in this case, in terms of uh, why is it okay that it's a rational basis case, it's because courts have come around to seeing that anti-gay policies rest on animus. They rest on fear, dislike, moral disapproval, religious teachings, but they don't really have an objective, non-discriminatory social policy basis that will be sufficient to sustain them under even the relatively undemanding rational basis test. And, and I, I take it that this might, you may have already answered this question by, by how you just spoke, but you give this, uh, Law Notes gives this case some fairly prominent treatment in this issue. Can you speak to what you see as a significance of it, I don't know if it, you think it's particularly important because it's in the tax realm or you think just because of the reasoning, but, uh, you know, I think some people might be surprised to see, you know, that given, given right. the court it's from and the jurisdiction it's from. Can you speak a little bit about why you think this case is as significant as it seems to be? Because it, it demonstrates the growing body of judicial authority, not just in places that we would uh, generally think as – traditionally pro-gay, liberal. It's, this isn't a, a district court judge in San Francisco. This isn't a district court judge in Chicago or Washington, D.C. or New York. This is a, a state trial judge in Anchorage, Alaska, who says it's irrational for the state to distinguish between married and unmarried people. And, and, and this may be, I don't know that you track this, and I'm sure others do, uh, but I'll ask, I mean, these are occurring not only in those jur- jurisdictions that you've described as not being ones we might think of as being so hospitable to LGBT uh, community members and their legal rights, um, but I would assume that this cuts across, you know, judges who are appointed uh, by Republicans and Democrats alike. I mean, it, certainly in some of these places, these must be Republican appointees reaching yeah. these decisions, or we're not sure about that. Well, um, I have not looked up uh, Judge Fifner's biography to see what his his political background is, or even to know how superior court judges in Alaska are selected. Perhaps they're elected. Some states they're appointed, some states they're elected. I do know that there's been an ongoing struggle in Anchorage about uh, getting a gay rights ordinance passed, and uh, that the city council, I think the city council actually passed it and it was vetoed by the mayor. So, uh, you know, we're we're seeing good legal developments in places where it might be very difficult. I, I can't imagine it would be an easy task to go into the Alaska legislature and to get this exemption thing correct. Right, and, and I only raise that point, um, you know, not because of something I may subscribe to, but certainly there are those who argue, uh, you know, when we talk about judicial activism and, you know, what people are referring to, obviously, is the idea that these are generally for those who are dismayed by some of the court's movement in the area of LGBT rights and other uh, other areas is that they're appointed by or, you know, by uh, Democratic or left-leaning presidents or other public officials. And to the extent that's not true, it raises sort of an interesting question well, about the future of, uh, you know, the future of the movement in the court system. Right. Well, we never tire of pointing out that uh, the Romer case and Lawrence 
Uh, the opinions for the court were written by Justice Kennedy, who was appointed by Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Justice Kennedy on many issues is seen as pretty much a conservative. Uh, he, he votes more frequently with the conservative justices on the court than with the progressive justices on the court. I hesitate to say liberal about any of the current <laughs> justices. Uh, but nonetheless, he's come around to the view that anti-gay legislative uh, measures lack a rational basis. And uh, is, is that a prediction about where he would be? On uh, marriage? Yes. Uh, well, on, on Section 3 of DOMA, perhaps. I mean, Section 3 of DOMA presents the issue of marriage sort of elliptically, not directly. Uh, it's, it's not whether people have a right to be married. It's whether people who are married under state law have a right to have their marriages recognized by the federal government, which is a slightly different question. So uh, striking down Section 3 of DOMA would not mean that overnight uh, same-sex couples could get married in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. But it would mean if they do get married and there is no residency requirement in any state that has same-sex marriage, if they did get married – their marriages would be respected by the federal government. And many of the rights and uh, obligations and privileges attached to marriage in this country derive from federal law. So that would be a big deal. Uh, I think we probably can move on to our last yeah, case. Yeah, I, I guess uh, let, let's take a break. Art has cued me that he's, uh, he's shared all the wisdom he can on this particular case, which is good because I didn't have another question for him. We're going to take one more break, and when we return, we're going to discuss a, um, a case out of the New York County Surrogates Court. Um, involving yet another challenge to uh, the will and the estate of a, uh, a deceased member of a same-sex couple that was married in, in Canada before his, uh, before his death. Uh, stay with us, and we'll be right back. We are back on the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast, and we're going to be talking about a case in New York County's surrogate court involving a challenge to a probate decree relating to the will of one Kenneth Ramphill, who named his same-sex spouse as sole distributee and as executor of an estate, and some challenges ensued, and this is the latest installment. Um, Art, uh, as I mentioned, this is uh, the latest installment of a a variety of legal challenges brought by um, the deceased's brothers, uh, starting with one and now the latest installment with another brother, who would essentially like to inherit property that the deceased owned in Florida, as well as other assets, uh, as opposed to it going to the deceased spouse, uh, Jay Craig. Uh, again, they were married in, in Canada, so these were a uh, legally recognized in New York um, married couple. Um, give us a little bit of a flavor of what's at stake in this case and what it's all about. Well, what this is all about is whether the estate plans of same-sex couples are going to be honored by the courts, uh, especially in cases where they marry and then they seek to have the same status as any married couple would have in the probate system. Uh, in, in this case, uh, Kenneth and Craig had been living together for many years. They owned an apartment jointly in Greenwich Village. They had a place on Fire Island. They had property in Montreal. Uh, and uh, Kenneth also acquired some property in Florida. And in order to enjoy the tax benefits of property ownership in Florida, he made sure that he was in residence there at least 183 days a year. He registered to vote there. He got his driver's Which license Which is something there. Derek Jeter did, and that was, yeah, there was well, no issue about – well, Well, no one claims Derek Jeter is a citizen of New York. Well, actually, that was that was the big issue was <laughs> yeah. whether he was in – that's an aside. Okay. I want to leave Derek Jeter out of this because it's, okay. it's actually not funny at all, this case, because it's a – Right. It's a sad case. It's a very because sad it got, case. Because someone died from lung cancer, which is sad. Uh, 
And uh, what happened was uh, that he was spending about half of each year down in Florida uh, to be domiciled there in order to enjoy the tax benefits. And then all of a sudden in 2008, as many of you may recall, the appellate division upstate ruled that same-sex marriages contracted out of state would be recognized in New York. Uh, Then uh, Governor Patterson followed up with his famous directive to the state agencies that they have to figure out how they're going to comply with this legal requirement to recognize same-sex marriages. So the press that spring of 2008 was full of this business about recognition of same-sex marriages. And by coincidence, it was just around that time that unfortunately Kenneth was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. So he had months to live. Uh, And with all of the same-sex marriage stuff in the news, he proposed to Craig. He said, you know, we've been, we've been partners all these years. Let's get married. And since they actually had an apartment in Montreal, it was not so difficult to engineer this. They went up to Montreal. They got married. And, and just as an aside, that's a power of, you know, now that we have marriage equality in New York, I think it yeah, may be a little get- easy for people to forget. Uh, you know, that's a powerful example of what it meant at the time, uh, particularly in light of the Patterson order, that these marriages would re- be respected that were entered into outside New York. I mean, you hear real-life situations, real-life people making – uh, you know, really meaningful de- decisions in their life uh, based right. on their decision, you know, based on long-term relationships and their love for one another. And I'm sure there's many more examples of folks like, like this couple who went out and did this. Right. And before they did it, they were, they were thinking about all of the, the legal implications that would flow from this. Uh, they, uh, R- Ken Ramphill decided, I better make a new will in which I identify my husband, my spouse, who I want to be my executor and the uh, primary beneficiary under my will. So they went in and they made a new will at the same time. Uh, in fact, before they went up to Montreal, the, uh, the surrogate, uh, Kristen Booth Glenn, mentions in her opinion that uh, perhaps a bit prematurely, Craig was identified as his husband. That <laughs> hadn't happened yet uh, when, they, when they signed the will. But then they went up to Montreal, they got married, uh, they came back to their Greenwich Village apartment And from that day until he passed away on November 1st of 2008, uh, Ken never set foot in Florida. So that year he was not in Florida, at least 183 days. But he basically – he focused himself on New York at that point and on enjoying what life he had left. And according to the court's opinion, he was pretty active till very close to the end. Uh, And uh, he didn't take any steps though to formally terminate his Florida domicile. He didn't – get a New York driver's license. After all, he was living in New York City and he probably didn't need one. Uh, He didn't change his voter registration and uh, he seemed determined to vote in that 2008 election where it would make a difference. So he cast an absentee ballot in Florida. After all, I'm not going to presume to know who he voted for, but (laughs) why would he go out of his way to vote in Florida instead of New York? Uh, So you draw your conclusions. Uh, The opinion doesn't uh, even speculate on that. But uh, he also took steps to begin... Uh, completing the necessary tax forms to be able to file his taxes in New York that year. Uh, but he – I don't know what official steps he could take to reestablish his domicile in New York other than living here. Mm-hmm. So uh, he was living here and he died here. And his uh, surviving spouse, Craig, filed for probate, took the will to the, to the probate court and filed. And uh, – the first issue that the court had to face, because there was no precedent at that point, was, is Craig a surviving spouse? And Judge Glenn ruled in that case that, yes, Craig was a surviving spouse. And in fact, she said, uh, because 
uh, Ken died with a surviving spouse, leaving a will uh, for probate. None of his blood relatives had to be notified. And, and if, if someone dies with a surviving spouse, the surviving spouse is the party to the probate proceeding, and there's no need to notify family members. Uh, so she didn't notify family members, but uh, Ken had some surviving brothers. And, and, and the first, the, 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 I guess the, the first, first challenge of, the of all is the f- right. Richard. Right, right. The Richard, Richard, Richard comes in and he objects that he should have been notified and she, he should have an obligation to participate in this proceeding and to object if he has objections to the will because he said uh, they may have married in Canada, but that doesn't count for anything in New York. So Judge Glenn uh, already had the example of the upstate court uh, that had ruled on marriage recognition, and uh, other appellate division courts were falling into line uh, with that ruling, and uh, she ruled in favor of uh, Craig and, and, and being on, recognized. On that point, it, it's worth, uh, you know, many of our listeners may have experience with this, but it, it is worth emphasizing how common a scenario, unfortunately, it still remains, uh, where long-term uh, same-sex couples share their life in, in, in countless ways that show a demonstrated commitment to each other over the course of a lifetime. And upon the death of one of the, the, the members of the couple, you know, family members are estranged or otherwise. I mean, I, I can't speak to this scenario, but you often see the scenario of family members who either disapproved for years and haven't been in contact with, with that person who's now deceased will, will emerge to basically fight the, uh, in their eyes, the good fight for the assets and of the deceased. And sometimes it's family members who are very friendly. And uh, that's as, actually a good as, point as, as well. As long as, as long as they're relatively still alive. And then after their, their relative dies, they move in and they want to oust the partner. Mm-hmm. That happens too. Sometimes, you know, when, when there's property or money looming there that's a very as a good target, point. that can corrupt people sometimes. So in this case, uh, Richard Ramphill appealed Judge Glenn's ruling to the appellate division, which affirmed her. Uh, and so she probated the will entered her final orders, and then out of the woodwork comes Ronald Ramphill, who says, oh, hold on a minute. Don't, don't go so this fast like here. It's like a never-ending saga. He says, my brother was a resident of Florida, and Florida does not recognize same-sex marriage. In fact, they have a constitutional amendment against recognizing same-sex marriage. And under Florida law, there are only three kinds of people who can be an executor, a surviving spouse, certain enumerated close relatives, or a resident of Florida. So he said, if he was domiciled in Florida... Then his law is governed by the his will is governed by the state of Florida, and Craig may not be the executor. And uh, see, this is I, I want to use a non legal term, and you, you point out in the article, um, you know, I think uh, kindly some of the complications that this just demonstrates the challenges facing our community with the patchwork of laws in different jurisdictions. I mean, this is just a mess that a a person you know dealing with one of life's you know greatest hardships, obviously the loss of a of a partner now has to fight the, the fight on, you know, which law applies and what our status is in one location versus another and, you know, whether we indicated, had an intent in one state versus another, where, where of course, those things matter in other contexts for opposite sex couples, but they're usually, you know, not so dispositive about whether a loved one, you know, one's life partner has any rights, has rights or doesn't have rights. I mean, this is a mess. Well, marriage is pretty much universally recognized in this country uh, across state lines if it's different sex marriage. Uh, what we have to recognize is that we are in a transitional period in the law, and transitional periods can be messy. And so we're in the midst of a messy transitional period 
where a, a same-sex couple who are legally married in New York, for example, and decide this summer we're going to take an auto trip around the country. And as they cross state lines, they become unmarried, married, unmarried, married, maybe recognized as domestic partners. Like when they cross over to Jersey, they recognize as domestic partners. Uh, and then in some other places, or rather as civil union partners, in some other places they'd be recognized as domestic partners. In some states they wouldn't be recognized as all, at all uh, as having any legal relationship. Uh, so we're in a situation where it's just a patchwork quilt across the country. And, of course, we're a mobile society. People move around. People travel. People are transferred for job purposes. People buy vacation homes in different places. And here we see the complications in this particular case. But Judge Glenn presented with all this evidence, and she had lots of evidence on both sides of the issue. She had the fact that uh, Ken never set foot in Florida after his diagnosis. Uh, we have the fact that he changed his will to designate his husband as the executor, which he couldn't have done if he was in Florida uh, because his husband was not domiciled in Florida, was not a close legal relative under Florida law, and was not recognized as a spouse. Uh, and he stayed in New York, and he, he clearly cast his lot in New York at that point. Uh, on the other hand, he didn't change his driver's license. He cast that absentee ballot, which is quite an anomaly to think that, that you consider yourself a citizen of New York, but you're casting an absentee ballot in Florida. It's sort of inconsistent there. Uh, but she said, on balance, summing up all the evidence, it seemed clear that after his diagnosis, and certainly after he got married, uh, Ken considered himself once again domiciled in New York. And, and on that, uh, you talk about the judge looking at, on balance, all the factors. And there was some we, sp we mentioned when we were, weren't being recorded earlier, and I wonder if you could take a moment. I mean, the judge uses some pretty powerful language uh, in reaching her decision, sort of, I think, that sums up, um, you know, her, her, her sense, basically, of how this couple uh, lived their lives. And I wonder if you could share right. that this with is, her. This is the, the heartwarming quote from the opinion that uh, – that we all love to read over and over again. She, she goes through all the facts, and then, then she says, there is one additional compelling fact. She writes, Ken was a proud gay man who treasured and sought in every way available to protect his husband Craig and Craig's rights upon his death. He named Craig executor in his will, and it was obviously his intent that Craig should not only be the primary beneficiary of his estate, but also that he be permitted to serve as a fiduciary an executor is a fiduciary under the law because to do so is one of the last services a family member can perform for a loved one who has passed away. So she concluded, based on the way these men lived their lives, that uh, it only made sense to determine that when Ken died, he was domiciled in New York. And thus he did determine it. And now the question is, uh, is Ronald Ramphel going to appeal this? Uh, finally, we should say with some pride, uh, since uh, the LGBT Law Association of Greater New York is, of course, the sponsor of Law Notes, that uh, some attorneys who are longtime members and, and I think both board members at various times of legal uh, represent the estate in the current litigation, and that's uh, Kevin Ferrelli and Erica Bell. Yeah, and I, uh, on that note, I, uh, ending with the quote uh, from the judge and that aside, I think that's a good time to, to end this edition of Law Notes on a good note, uh, this October 2011 uh, edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, as always, to read the latest issue of Law Notes, please visit us at www.le-gal.org, that's legal.org, or at the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. 
This and future podcasts can also be found online at legal.podbean.com. And eventually we'll be able to say it'll be in iTunes coming soon. If you'd like to make a donation in support of Lesbian Gay Law Notes or this podcast, please consider donating to the Legal Foundation, also online at legal.org. Finally, your comments and questions are also welcome at info at le-gal.org or to the primary editor and writer of Law Notes, Arthur Leonard. His address is in Law Notes, so we don't have to repeat it here. And thank you again. Until next time, that's all. <laughs>